This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Hope that you are doing well and things are going well in your life. I know it's been a while. You know, actually, it's been longer for me than, than, than it has for you uh, because uh, this past week after I got uh, home from my trip, uh, I was uh, dealing with a little bit of a cold, and so I was at, 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 the, at the house all day, you know, for like an entire week. And if you know anything about me, you know I don't do still at all. And so, like, uh, I, you know, I've been, like, pulling my hair out, waiting to see all of you. So, hey, you're really, it's really good to see you. You can't imagine how happy I am to see all of you. So, anyhow, uh, just uh, want to say a big thank you. Uh, uh, Bobby did a great job last week, a couple of weeks ago. You know, uh, Jason uh, was preaching, and uh, it's one of the confidences I have. We have a great teaching team here, and whenever I'm gone, I don't, I don't worry about anything. It always feels safe that way. But I do miss you guys, you know? I mean, just, you know, you may not know that, but I actually do. I really do. Well, we are continuing our series uh, today, and I'm excited about getting into the second part of Life Without Lack. Uh, As you know, tonight uh, we are doing a picnic. If you have not planned on being here, I really want to encourage you. One, there is a ton of fried chicken that I'm going to be stuck with if you don't show up, so... Um, and as hungry as I am, I don't think, you know, like hundreds of pieces of fried chicken are going to sit real well with me. So let me encourage you, please come and uh, have some fried chicken tonight. Uh, hang out with us a little bit. We'd like to touch base as a body. Uh, but also, I want to share with you some things for this next year. And uh, a, a question came up like, you know, uh, in, in regard to some of the things we're going to be doing next year, do I have to commit to what we're doing next year, like right now? And no, I just want to tell you about it. I'm excited about it. Normally, I don't tell you about these things until January. And this time, it's just so big and it's so exciting that I need you to like talk about it now so that we are ready come January, not getting ready in January. And so uh, I'd just like to encourage you to join us uh, tonight, 6 o'clock, and uh, we're going to have a good time together, and uh, I promise I will be brief, um, you know, probably more brief than I'm going to be right now. Anyhow, all right, well, with that said, Psalm 23, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, as I mentioned, this is probably the most read, most beloved psalm in the entire Psalter. Uh, Of course, one of the ways that we recognize it primarily is it's read at almost every funeral because of that line in verse 4, referring to the valley of death or referring to death. Um, But, you know, the truth is this psalm is very much a psalm centered on life. It's about life. And in fact, the comfort that we find there in that verse, interestingly enough, is actually less about facing death and is much more focused on the idea of that how that you and I would walk through life unafraid. And that's what we're going to focus in on today is how do we do life in the face of danger? How do we do life in the face of death and the difficulties that come our way? As you and I think about this, King David, right, is the author of this psalm. And when you think about David's life for just a heartbeat, 
You know, you can't help but think of a life that was full of real fear and real hardship. Before he was king, when he was a shepherd, he talked about fighting the bear and the lion with his bare hands. Anybody done that recently? You've tackled a bear or a lion with your bare hands? I mean, I'm instantly impressed already, uh, you know. Um, yeah. And then, you know, as a warrior, you know, he was betrayed. He was then later on hunted by his own king. He lived in caves and was on the run and gathered together just kind of the fringes of society and turned them into over 500 mighty men ready to go to battle, ready to stand with him against nations, right? I mean, like, nations were chasing him, plural, and yet uh, he, like, continued to uh, defend his own nation who, that was waging war against him, as well as making his way against the Philistines and conquering his enemies. Uh, an impressive figure in every which way that you can talk about him. And so this is not the prayer of some, you know, kind of armchair, you know, old guy who's like thinking back over life. This is the prayer of a warrior, confident of God's provision, which is what we talked about last week, confident about God's guidance and protection, and confident that he should fear no evil because God was with him. Now, week one, like I said, we focused in on the provision of God, trusting Him to provide. This week, we're focused in on those middle verses that make up the bulk of the psalm, talking about trusting God to protect us, to guide us in the middle of life's ups and downs, the challenges, the threats. And the thing that I want you to keep in mind deeply in this is that David reminds us, even if we do not trust God, even if we don't rely on Him, the things that come to us in the midst of all of this, that none of those things are actually in our hands and that in reality control, the control that we seem to crave so much is actually just an illusion that it is indeed God who is in control. So as we take a look here together, I've asked that during this series you'd do a favor for me. If you, everybody would go ahead and stand. Instead of everybody reading from their own version, if you guys would join me in reading the Psalter aloud together, and then uh, by all means take a look at it on your phone and tablet there by yourself as we're studying it together. But let's read off the screen together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. All right, so picking up there in kind of the middle of the verse, in verse 3, we read those words, He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. 
probably the most overlooked part of the passage, actually. Likely because of that word righteousness. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. It's, it seems like a somewhat kind of ambiguous thing to talk about paths of righteousness. What does it mean to, to walk in paths of righteousness? I think for most people that as we come to that word righteous in the first place, many of us have had our ideas about righteousness informed in a very legalistic kind of way to mean simply that of purity and then purity defined typically only as abstaining from certain behaviors going back to the old southern trifecta I don't drink, I don't cuss, I don't chew and I don't date the girls that do. But if we take just a moment to reflect on the meaning of righteousness in its context, it's a much bigger, more beautiful picture of David's intent and of the power of the psalm. The word there that is translated righteousness in our Old Testament is the word zedekah. Zedekah is means just that. It means righteousness, but uh, understanding that it has a rich, rich history within Judaism that means so much more than this idea of right things over wrong things and has a, a deeper meaning than the idea of what it means to have a particular way of life. When, we've, when that term was first minted, uh, you know, the... the um, the use of zedekah wasn't just simply meaning like in the sense of uh, pluses and minuses or something like that, but was really trying to convey the idea uh, that there was a way unto life. And so within Judaism, it was common to refer to all of Judaism as zedekah or the way. If you think about it in the book of Acts, when Paul is talking about uh, whenever there in the, in the book of Acts when it's talking about Paul persecuting the early church and one of the things that said that Paul was actively persecuting the way. Some of you maybe even have heard of denominations that call themselves the way or uh, references to Christianity in terms of that idea of the way. But the concept goes all the way back into this kind of intertestamental period uh, between the Old and the New Testament of using that word zedekah to refer to uh, the way of life, the, the path of righteousness that would be something much more than doing A plus B equals C or not doing this list of things, not touching certain behaviors, and much more in the idea that one is living in in the way of the covenant. If you think about it, uh, a few months ago uh, when we were going through Romans and we got to this whole idea of righteousness there in, uh, in, Ro in Romans chapter 4, 5, and 6, we were talking about righteousness being in the idea not of pluses and minuses, not in a specific list of behaviors, but saying that a person was right when they were in right standing with the covenant. In other words, it wasn't in our ability to do things. It wasn't in our ability to keep a list of behaviors, but it was the idea that, I was in, that you would be in right standing with God. And so that's why when it came to Abraham, long before uh, it was listed what the Ten Commandments were or anything else, that Abraham was counted as righteous. 
Long before he ever did anything, God counted it to him as righteousness. In other words, what he was saying is that he was in a right relationship with God and that as he, long as he maintained that relationship with God, then he was counted as righteous. Not because of what he did, not because of what he didn't do, but simply out of that place of relationship. We understand that in one sense in which whenever we talk about someone coming to faith in Christ, we recognize that at that moment they did nothing. In fact, we often will tell people that as they're coming toward Christ and we're trying to explain the gospel to them, and we will tell them, well, it's grace plus nothing. And we will like, you know, tell them that till we're blue in the face. And finally someone believes us, and the moment they believe us, we go, that's fantastic. Now, all you need to do is you need to start doing this, and you need to start doing this, and you need to start doing this, and they go, whoa, wait a minute. I signed up for that thing where you do not have to, you know, that part where I, I'm saved by my faith alone. And what happened to that part? And we go, oh, yeah, but, you know, like, like you know, it's... Think of it kind of like bait and switch, you know? I mean, like, you know, it's, you come to the sale, but what we really want is for you to have this model, not the base model. And so now, here's the deluxe model, and we're, we want to sell you on the deluxe model. And we go, you know, people go all the time, wait a minute, that's not what I signed up for. And it's this idea, oftentimes, in the way that Christianity is, is sold to people, if you will, those hawking the wares of Christianity, dare I say, is that we pr pronounce it in such a way that we tell people it's not in anything you do, and then we tell people, but it's all about what you do. And it gets really confusing, doesn't it? And then we're surprised, like people come to faith in Christ, they pray a prayer on a Sunday morning or something like that, and then they go, and then we start telling them about walking in the way, we start talking about what it looks like, and, and there's this absolute sense of disconnect between what I was told to begin with and then what I'm told later on. Righteousness, when we put it in the, in the pluses and minuses column, leads to you know, a sense of deep disappointment with God. And we, and we feel like we've, had, we've been sold one thing and then given something else entirely different. But rightness is talking about the standing in relationship with God. And so then, what does it mean for you and I to walk in paths of righteousness if it's not in the pluses and minuses column? How would you and I walk in righteousness if it's not up to me to earn righteousness or to avoid unrighteousness, minuses? What would it look like for me to walk in the way of righteousness? What does it look like for you and I to walk with the Lord? There's a deep abiding sense of trust when you and I look at the relationship of the sheep and the shepherd. 
David building on that imagery when he's talking about the way of righteousness, when he's talking about the way, the zedakah, uh, he's talking about the way that leads to life. He's talking about a path of life that, that brings about fulfillment, that brings about joy, that brings about a sense of safety and security, that, that brings about provision. He's talking about an entire way of life. He's not talking about getting in my pluses and my minuses. It's an invitation for me to go on a journey with God. The invitation that David is making is the one that David is already on. The one that defined David's life. If you've spent any time reading about David at all, if you haven't, it's okay. But if you've spent some time reading about David at all, one of the things that we hear about David again and again and again was that David was a man whose heart was like that after God. And I, everybody loves to talk about that. You know, like we, we'll pull out certain things where David like is really successful in life or David does something really cool or, you know, he defeats his enemies and something like, yeah, you know, David, you know. And, and we like whenever David's a winner, but then there's the other parts about David that are kind of tough. You know, like when he stays home while everybody goes off to war and he has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and then has Uriah killed to cover up his tracks. Yeah, that part of David. The, the David who, you know, had... Literally hundreds of wives, even though the Scripture was very clear in its admonition not to take many wives. And yet David has more wives than anybody until his son Solomon, like they were in competition or something. No, that's not, that's not the paths of righteousness. What is it about David that he can be declared as to be one who has a heart after God. And yet, if you and I were to stand in the columns and measure his pluses and minuses, you and I would find him falling significantly short. And, and specifically, and some of the things he does are very destructive. I, I mean, having a man murdered, I'd think, was right up there at the top of the list, wouldn't you? It's not because everything that you and I measure about David makes him a great guy. It's because David understood this relationship of the sheep and the shepherd. And he says, you know, the thing is, is what I know about the way of the Lord is that the way of the Lord brings life. The way of the Lord brings uh, peace and joy. And so he can say with this deep sense of abiding uh, trust, I know that the way of the Lord is the right way. I know that whenever I'm following after Him, I can see the fruit in my life. I can see how it, uh, my life overflows with His goodnesses, His kindness, with His mercies. I know what is zedakah, what's the right way of life. And it's in hot pursuit of God. So that you and I, when we read about David and we read, 
that he's a man with a heart after God, and we look at those other places where he falls short and he fails and everything, we look at it's the trajectory of his life. It's that sense of deep abiding trust that David has. You see, because in reality what David is saying is, is, I trust you, Lord. I trust you. Can I tell you that that's what, where real faith comes into play? You know, it's easy for you and I to talk about faith in a very kind of esoteric, a very philosophical kind of way to say, oh, I have confidence in you, God. And then to completely conduct ourselves in a different way altogether. Hello? Anyone ever struggle? Just, yeah, don't raise your hand. Okay, so, you know, the reality is, is that you and I uh, live in that place of tension all the time, don't we? Where we have declared something to be true. I believe you, God. I'm for you. Uh, I trust you with my life. Uh, if I could choose just one thing until I get to the parking lot. If I could choose just one thing until my job's on the line. If I could choose just one thing until my child is sick. If I could choose just one thing, Lord, I'd choose you. I believe we say it from the depths of our hearts when we're in the middle of song, when we're declaring things, when we're reading the Scriptures and we're reading about triumph. I think we believe it with all of our hearts. We're settled deep within us that it's true, that it's the things that we want to be true about our lives. It's the things that we love and we cling to in those desperate moments. And yet the reality is, is that when life comes and hits us, that we often don't. Choose you. We choose our shortcut. We choose the comfortable. We choose the easy answers. We choose the neat way of controlling things ourselves that we so desperately long for. David, what characterizes David's life that he's identified as a man whose heart is after God is that it is so normative in the way that he walks in his pursuit after God that it, we, we look at the characterization of his life and we say, here's a man whose heart is after God. And when he does stupid, just like we all do, it stands out. The, the, the difference is between a David and the rest of us is that David's things stand out because on occasion he gets it wrong. Our life stands out because on occasion we actually do the thing that God is doing. Hello? Like, you know, even a blind dog finds a bone, right? You know, I mean, like, sometimes as we're walking with God, we will stumble onto the things that God is doing and then we will join God in that moment. But for most of us, the truth is, is that we're so busy, so wrapped up in the things that we think, praying for the things that we want, seeking after those things, trying to control our situation, trying to fix things, trying to do this, trying to that that we live in that constant place of frenzy and trying to make everything happen all while declaring, oh God, I trust you, I believe you, you are king of the universe. If you would just do it my way, everything would be fine. What characterizes David is that again and again as he is in hot pursuit of God that he is 
reorienting his life around what God is doing. I know people like to like make this, this deep dis, you know, distinguishing between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, can I tell you that the, everything within the old point, in the Old Testament points to the new? There is no new without the old. And this whole thing of how David is relating to God is not somehow less or deficient. The heart of David is one that is bent on seeking what God is doing in the world and joining Him in doing it. It's the heart of Jesus when Jesus tells us, I do not do anything except what I see the Father in heaven doing. It's as if they know the same shepherd. It's as if, as if they have had that same uh, sense of expectation of a God who is able to provide and able to guide in the midst of all of life. And so what stands out about David in the midst of all of this is not that he has failures. What stands out about David is that his sense of utter dependence upon God most of the time so that we would characterize his life as one that's in hot pursuit. How would those closest to you characterize your life? Is it one of hot pursuit? David leads us pragmatically down the path then, beginning with fearing nothing but God when he says in verse 4, and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your translation might say something like the darkest valley the lowest valley. Um, actually, the Hebrew's kind of a little on the vague side there. You know, like, I know everybody thinks, well, if you study Hebrew or Greek, it will fix everything. Not even close. Um, so, uh, the, the reality is, is that some things just don't translate well into English. Um, the other thing is, is just simply that Hebrew is a phenomenal language. And, uh, and that just simply means that it points to things that happen in life as an example of something rather than being very literal. Here, the point primarily being is this. Whatever could be the worst possible scenario could be death, could be the low point, it could be danger, it could be just life bottoming out. Anyone here ever hit the bottom? Wondered which way you were going to turn? So whether life turns deadly or sorrowful or whatever else, David says, here's what I know about God. He does not abandon. Do you know that? I know that we, like, we give, you know, because we're in church, we're supposed to give proper mental assent to things, but, but I'm talking about in your heart of hearts. I'm talking about in the quiet place. I'm talking about when evil happens. I'm talking about when danger comes your way. 
David knew that God would not abandon him to evil, that God would not abandon him to danger, that God would not abandon him to his enemies, that God would not even abandon him to his own destructiveness. Yeah. That's why the imagery that follows is so important. Rod and staff, the tools of the shepherd. The rod for protection. Excuse me, the, the, the staff for protection and the rod for correction. We like the protection part. We like the staff. Nobody wants the rod. And, but here's the thing is that that promise that God will not abandon us means both. The promise that God will not abandon us does not only mean protection from our enemies, but it means correction when we are our own worst enemy. It means that God works in the midst of our circumstances. Often in our culture, God not abandoning us has become something akin to approving of every behavior. Because for most of us, the idea of acceptance and embrace has come to mean excluding correction. Our culture says that love only accepts me and embraces everything I do without exception, even if it's not good for me or for others. But that's not the biblical imagery. In contrast, the image here is the shepherd not only protects, but he does indeed correct. The Hebrew writer says it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, that if we are not disciplined, if we are not corrected, then we're illegitimate children of God. That God disciplines every son that He loves. And that if you've never been corrected, then you're not a son. David paints that picture <laughs> that when God doesn't abandon, it means that He not only protects me in difficult times, but He also corrects me when I am the source of my pain. David saw the road of living, Zedakah, is an interactive relationship with him. And his conclusion was that God was free to do so because his whole life was in his hands. So that he felt compelled to live boldly in times of danger, confident even in the face of losing his life. Can I just point that out for just a moment? That David's circumstances didn't always turn out well. <laughs> David finds himself in some of the most embarrassing and difficult situations. Even his own son pursuing his life unto death. Sleeping with his father's concubines on the rooftop to shame him. I promise you that in that moment that people were thinking that David was absolutely defeated and that God has turned his back on him. But David, David knew different. See, David didn't conclude that God was for him or against him based on the outcome of circumstances. David concluded that God was with him and that he was using every situation in his life and that God was with him and for him regardless of the outcome and that even if the outcome meant losing his life, 
would mean that God had never abandoned him, but instead ushered him into his presence. See, that's the difference between cultural Christianity and the authentic thing. One is wholly dependent on circumstances being the way that I want them in order for me to trust God, in order to believe God, in order to rely on Him. Another says that regardless of however the circumstances play out, that God is still in control, that even in my pain, in my sufferings, in my trials, in my hardships, that God does not abandon me, but goes with me through to the very end, even in the midst of all of it, and that I trust Him because my life is His, not my own. I've been bought with a price. It's easy to say. It is a whole other thing to live out, isn't it? I think that's why this psalm became such a constant companion to me beginning in 2020. Embracing David's vision for life It occurred to me in 2020 with no place to go and the cloud of death hanging over the globe that David's vision of life suddenly took on new meaning. Here I was, just like you, walking daily through the valley of death, or Walmart, whichever you want to call it. And every time I entered the market, like I was thinking about the the potential consequences, right? I mean, like they, they, the, the, the news was out there everywhere worrying us to death. Every time we gathered together with other people, we wondered, were we being brave or were we being stupid? And somewhere in the midst of that, I recognized that regardless of the outcome, of whether I was to continue to live on or whether I would be taken from this life, that God had brought me to this hour, to this moment, to the people that I was around, and that my choice ultimately came down to whether or not I trusted Him, not anything else. That helped me to be brave. And then something else started to happen. It occurred to me that he's in charge of the valley of death. He's also in charge of the people I meet along the road. He's not surprised at all by the people I encounter, whether they're for me or against me, whether they would harm me or seek to do me good. And then I read these words by one of my mentors. The world is a perfectly safe place to be once you trust God with your life. Let me say that again. Mm -hmm. The world is a perfectly safe to be once you have trusted God with your life. Do you you find those words hard to believe? I know when I read them, they stopped me in my tracks. God, do I actually trust you with my life? Or do I really only trust myself? God, do I really trust you with my life or do I really only trust my spirituality 
to save me? <laughs> is it really dependent on my pluses and minuses, how good I've done, how bad I've done? As you and I look over the life of King David, he seemed to fear nothing and no one. Think through that again. Fighting the bear and the lion as a youth. Fighting Goliath with nothing but a sling and a stone. Slaying thousands of Philistines. Crept into the camp of Saul. Left him a present to make his point that he was not afraid of him, nor did he lack the opportunity to kill him. But he preserved Saul's life out of love for God and duty to his king. And later when Absalom sought his life and violated his wives, he actually gave up his right to justice and his heart was broken when the young man was destroyed. And yet do not think him a pushover. He dealt with commanders who violated his command. He defeated his enemies. He enlarged his kingdom. He made treaties a plethora because of all the people who wanted so much to be on his right side he acquired much, and what characterized David's life was simply that. His trust in God, so much so, that when he did take the matters into his own hand, we all know it. If these moments are the ones that matter, if it's all about what we do with our own hands instead of trusting God, then like David, we are most vulnerable most wounded, appearing most abandoned. Or if, like David, we will come to a place of consecration where we believe, God, you are the one who leads me. And so that my circumstances, the situations that I find myself in, that I can say that you are with me and for me regardless of those circumstances. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. Might I remind you that David's table included Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, grandson of King Saul, whom he had deposed. Numerous other vassal kings sat at David's table. And every time David defeated another king, most of the time, he would sit them at his own table for the rest of their lives and feed them because he was confident of who was in charge, that it was God and not David. As I mentioned a while back in communion, as Christians, our only real enemy is not Egypt, it's not the Philistines, Babylon, or Rome. It's not even the Russians or the Iranians. No, our own real enemy is sin and death. And the Russians and the Iranians Though they think us their enemy, they have the same enemy. It's not us either. That as we're walking this whole thing out, the question is, is whether this is a grand vision for living, one in which we are forgiven and we forgive, one in which we have confidence in who God is more than in our own ability to manage things, or... Or do we choose a much more manageable gospel of our own making? One that doesn't ask us to trust God in the face of death. One that only asks God to bless what we're doing, but never asks God what He's doing. 
one that never steps up to the challenge, a life lived entirely, miserably in lack? Or would you and I rise to the invitation to a life without lack? The life that you and I have been seeking all along that says, I've been called into a world that to the rest of creation appears like a very dangerous place. But I know in whom I have believed. And I know in whom I have put my trust. And they feared not their lives unto death. And the Gospel went out to all of creation. Or not. You and I are called to live a very dangerous life. One of great faith. One of great provision and expectation in the midst of a world who is convinced that there is never enough. Never enough kindness. Never enough grace. Never enough provision, never enough power, never enough. And you know what? You'll never be enough in that world. If you're tired of never being enough, let me invite you to a life without lack. So if you're here today, and you feel confident of God's provision and confident of God's protection, I want to invite you to do something for the sake of us all. Would you stand to your feet today? If you are confident of God's provision and His protection, would you stand to your feet? Let's pray. Father, we have been given an opportunity to stand and to uh, confess with our lives, with our mouths, that we are confident in who You are. Confident in Your ability to provide. Confident in Your ability to lead us. And yet, even as we make this confidence stand together in this moment, in this room, we recognize that the enemy is already beginning to whisper lies to our hearts, to our minds, to challenge us. As we walk outside these doors, we know that the enemy will be waiting to pounce on this declaration before all of the heavens, before all the cosmos that we have made today. And so, Lord, <coughs> we're asking You to fill us with a great boldness, a, a sense of trust and expectation. Lord, that You will meet us in our confident confession today and that You will give us strength, that You will help us not to waver when we're afraid, that You will help us to believe when we feel like we are lacking, that we will press in over and against the evidence that the world is shoving down our throat, that we would have this sense of expectation 
that you are changing the atmosphere in us and through us. Lord, use us as vessels of righteousness to walk in a way that brings life and health and hope to those around us. Use us, O oh God, that we walk in a way that, that, they, that they would see the mighty display of your hand, of, of our confidence in you in the midst of our circumstances and situations, and that we would not doubt you, that we would not fear our enemies. But in this moment, Lord, that we would press in confident that you are the God who meets all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have prayer team members go ahead and come on up. If you do not feel that sense of confidence, let me encourage you to come get some prayer today or maybe there's some other needs that you have this morning and in terms of uh, finances. Maybe you have some needs in terms of some healing, physical healing, uh, something else going on in your life. Let me invite you to come get some prayer this morning. Otherwise, let me invite you, please take time to fellowship in the, in the lobby out there. Uh, get your kids from Kids Church, all that kind of good stuff. And I hope to see you tonight. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.